This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at destinations in Olympia. Can you please give a very, very warm welcome? Put your hands together and please welcome to the stage Mr. Tristan Hunt. Oh, very good. See, I got the time right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Tristram Hunt, uh, and this morning I was canvassing for the Labour Party in the snow in Cambridge, and now I'm here in this rather more ambient temperature. Um, but you'll be glad to know I'm not here to tell you about our exciting promises for May the 7th. Uh, we're going to, I could do, um, uh, we're going to hear, we're going to talk about history uh, instead. On the 30th of June, 1997, after the 99-year lease on the new territories came to an end, Great Britain handed back Hong Kong to the People's Republic of China. At the stroke of midnight, the Union Jack was lowered to the strains of God Save the Queen. The Hong Kong police ripped the royal insignia from their uniforms and Red Army troops poured over the border. Steaming out of Victoria Harbour, as the Royal Marines played Rule Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory on the last symbolic voyage of the Royal Yacht Britannia. Britain's last governor, former Conservative Party chairman Chris Patton, wrote, that night we were leaving one of the greatest cities in the world, a Chinese city that was now part of China, a colony now returned to its mighty motherland in rather different shape to that in which it had become Britain's responsibility a century and a half before. In London, the atmosphere was altogether shriller. The handover of Hong Kong to China strikes many Westerners as a disgrace and a tragedy, thundered The Economist. Never before has Britain passed a colony directly to a communist regime that does not even pretend to respect conventional democratic values. The diaries of Alastair Campbell, Prime Minister Tony Blair's Director of Communications, describes the scene amongst the UK delegation preparing for the handover. When someone referred to the Chinese as the Dewhursts of Peking, there was a mild laugh around the table. I looked at Chris Patton a bit bemused. Dewhursts as in butchers, he said. Campbell thought it all a little self-indulgent. But when he caught sight of the Chinese soldiers. He was hit by the full awfulness, as he put it, of the handover. Then the flag came down and theirs went up and it was all pretty sick. Tony Blair hated it and it showed a little. I can't believe that we could not have kept it. In his own memoirs, Tony Blair recalls of the ceremony a tug not of regret, but of nostalgia for the old British empire. He also revealed in that memoirs how as a newly elected prime minister, he flies over to Hong Kong on this, this VC-10, arrives in Hong Kong completely jet-lagged, uh, at which point the Chinese premier thought he'd test him out on his knowledge of Shakespeare, um, which was not particularly uh, strong. But there was one member of the British delegation keener to cling on to the past. In a confidential diary entry, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales laid bare his despair at seeing the Crown Colony returned to the mainland. Watching another piece fall from his family inheritance, the prince lamented the ridiculous rigmarole of meeting the old waxwork, Yang Zemin, and the horror of watching an awful Soviet-style ceremony in which Chinese soldiers goose-step onto the stage and haul down the Union Jack. And it's 
So heartening, the Prince of Wales no longer makes these kinds of gaffes. Charles, Philip, Arthur, George, Mountbatten, Windsor knew all too well that when his time came to assume the throne, the loss of Hong Kong meant that Britain's imperial role would be long past. Such is the end of empire, I sighed to myself. But if the British Empire has indeed come to an end, its legacies remain nonetheless apparent right around the world. And the most compelling of these phenomena still with us is the chain of former imperial cities from Mumbai to Dublin, Melbourne to New Delhi. After sporting pastimes in the English language, urbanism is arguably the most lasting of the British imperial legacies. And this imperial heritage is now being preserved and restored at a remarkable rate, as post-colonial nations debate the virtues and vices, the legacies and burdens of the British past, and how they should relate to it today. So what my new book seeks to do is explore that imperial story, explore the history of the British Empire through the urban form. Ten cities telling the rise and fall of the British Empire. It charts the changing character of British imperialism through the architecture and civic institutions, the street names and fortifications, the material culture and the ritual. And what it also charts is the idea of empire, how the motivation of empire was then made flesh through the urban floor, and how this vision of empire shaped us as much as it shaped the modern world. So ladies and gentlemen, my story begins with my first city on the eastern seaboard of America, the city of Boston, uh, where in the mid-17th century, a small band of Puritan settlers and merchants sought to create a new England away from the fallen old England of Laudian Stuart England. Here, one would be able to practice religion freely, unless, of course, you're a Quaker, um, but you could then also make money uh, out of the growing cod uh, and timber uh, industry. They called this city on a hill, this godly Puritan city, Boston, after the residence uh, of one of their initial founders, who was from Boston in Lincolnshire. And what this map you can see above you reveals, I think, is the narrowness of Boston originally. Now all this land is infilled through the 19th and 20th centuries. But at the time, Boston was a tight, narrow, almost island on the northeast littoral um, of America, where Puritans and godly merchants came together to build a new world. But as the 1600s gave way to the 1700s, Boston became part of a transatlantic commercial world. There was a culture of Anglicanism, which meant that Boston was as much a part of English culture in many ways as Manchester, Exeter, London, uh, and Plymouth. In Boston, they read the same plays, they, uh, they went to the same plays, they read the same books, they subscribed to the same journals, uh, they had the same culture. So the empire began almost in a sense of fraternity, separated by the Atlantic Ocean. But what Boston made its money on was, yes, initially trade, but also the wars of the British Empire during the 18th century. In the 1700s, Britain was at war with the Spanish and the French empires, and Boston grew rich as a provisioning city involved uh, in supporting those conflicts. And after a while, the British Parliament 
did what it likes to do, uh, which is ask for some money. Um, and it began to suggest to Boston that they might want to pay some taxes uh, for the Royal Navy uh, and the British Army. And originally, uh, we, the, British, the Parliament sought to uh, uh, raise money through a tax on stamps. Uh, and the Stamp Act uh, was introduced. And why I love this picture uh, is here you have a, a British... Um, Ceramicist, and it's a great crime for a member of parliament for Stoke-on-Trent to put up a picture of a teapot made in Derby. But uh, you've got British ceramicists creating goods to sell to colonists uh, who are beginning to resist the British government. So this was a marketing opportunity uh, for the northeast of America uh, coming out of Derby. Uh, but the Stamp Act was reversed, uh, and then the British Parliament went for another uh, tax, uh, and they chose to tax something central to... Anglo identity, which was, of course, tea. Um, the Boston Tea Party um, is regarded in America as a great heroic struggle about no taxation without representation. We know that it was just an attempt to keep open some rather dodgy smuggling routes. But either way, the British Parliament begins to become a foreign force to the people uh, of Boston. And resistance begins in the American colonies. And what I love about this picture is you get a sense of the Boston Tea Party almost as an oil slick, that they pour the tea leaves into the harbor and it wafts all the way down uh, to Dorchester. But that was the beginning of the end uh, of uh, the first uh, empire um, uh, with, with Boston. My second city, of empire, um, sorry, my second city of empire, did you see the Boston Tea Party one? Here's the Boston Tea Party. Um, my second city of empire is, is, is what goes with tea, which is, which is sugar, which takes me to Bridgetown, Barbados. And the history of the British in the West Indies is a salutary and harsh reminder of the raw brutality, oppression, and racism involved in so much of the colonial project. The British became involved in sugar production from the late 1600s using techniques developed by the Dutch and the Brazilians, but they would never get the native Amerindians to work the land, nor indeed the Irish uh, um, indentured uh, labor. So the British followed the Dutch tradition uh, and started to import uh, Africans to work the land in the Caribbean. Between 1662 and 1807, British ships carried 3.25 million Africans across the Atlantic to America and the Caribbean. And here you see in this, this picture uh, the bringing in of the cane from the fields, the crushing of the cane in the vertical rollers uh, at the top, the juice coming out of that, uh, and then going into the boiling rooms and on its way to rum and sugar uh, and molasses. And what the sugar industry did was to transform this tiny island of Barbados, an island really no bigger than the Isle of Wight, into one of the richest territories into the world, in the world. The whole is a sweet spot of earth, not a span hardly uncultivated with sugar canes. All sides bend with an easy declivity to the sea and is ever green, wrote one visitor. And here you see the beauty uh, of Barbados and the industrial landscape being worked. And I particularly love this image because it catches the Caribbean clouds so successfully. But what you also see in this image is the busyness of Carlisle Bay, uh, the, the amount of traffic in Carlisle Bay. Because as you know, Barbados was the most easterly 
and still is, the most easterly uh, of the Caribbean islands. So this was the point at which the slaves from West Africa came in and the point of which the sugar goods went back out in the triangular trade uh, to Europe. And it was the riches of the triangular trade. It was the riches of sugar and slavery which provided the initial capital for the Industrial Revolution and helped to fund the further progress of the British Empire. My third city completes the initial Atlantic configuration, and it is the city at the heart of England's earliest colony, the city of Dublin. From the plantations of the late 16th century, the English and the Scots had settled Ireland, and as such, they became a part of the Irish nation. These settlers and their descendants, the so-called Protestant ascendancy, turned the city of Dublin during the 18th century into a showcase of their civilization. Here we see uh, Leinster House, the seat of the Duke of Leinster, one of the great uh, landlords, one of the great plantation landlords in Ireland. And this is now the seat of the Irish Parliament, but it was also the model for the White House. Uh, this would be the architecture for the White House in America. And if we don't think of Dublin today as an imperial city, as a colonial city. Certainly they did in the 1960s when you had that great swathe of demolition going through uh, Dublin. What they were knocking down in the 1960s was in many places a memory of the British Empire. As one Irish minister put it, Georgian buildings are an offence to all true blue Irishmen. They are a hangover from a repressive past and they must go. And that was the impetus for the wrecking balls swinging through the terraces and the squares. The architecture of Dublin was a testament to a desire to build a sense of Britishness. And here you see in the frieze of the Custom House, um, Britannia and Hibernia cuddling up together. And you can see Britannia uh, with the Union uh, and, uh, and Hibernia uh, with, with the harp. And at the corners of this image, you see the ships bringing in the goods. And this is quite complicated for the history of Ireland because Dublin did well out of the empire. Ireland, at times, did very well out of the empire. So on the one hand, Ireland is a colony. On the other hand, Ireland becomes part of the British imperial project. And its soldiers and its doctors and its administrators uh, were sent to the far-flung parts of the empire to administer uh, the colonial uh, project. In 1800, 1801, this cuddling you see in the middle is then uh, sort of uh, brought together officially with the Act of Union uh, and Ireland and Britain uh, join uh, together. And the architecture uh, of Dublin uh, becomes even more consciously British. And here you see uh, the General Post Office, but you also see Nelson's Column. And right across the cities of the British Empire, having a Nelson's column, having a Nelson's pillar, uh, was a, a, a sort of symbol uh, of British imperial intent. Now, as you can imagine, again, um, after uh, independence, some of this architecture wasn't particularly favourable. And at a meeting of the Dublin City Council on the 7th of December 1953, a letter was submitted from the Honourable Secretary of the IRA Dublin Brigade enclosing a copy of a resolution adopted by the Dublin Brigade Council calling for the removal of Nelson's pillar. And this was basically the IRA saying we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but Nelson's pillar's coming down. Uh, and in 1966, it was blown up. So Boston, Bridgetown, 
Dublin are the first of my three cities, the first cities of the first empire of the Atlantic Empire. I then want to move to the second empire. I want to move towards India. But in order to get there, we have to go past my fourth city, which is the brothel and tavern uh, of the two oceans, or more generously, the master link of connection between the Western and the Eastern world, the city of Cape Town. The capture and control of Cape Town in the late 18th, early 19th century was fundamental to the growing power of the Royal Navy and crucially securing and holding on to India and the riches of India for the British. This was the seaport and the provisioning station for the swing to the east. Now, Cape Town, in terms of European settlement, was a Dutch city, Kapstadt. Uh, and here in this beautiful picture from the early 1800s by Lady Anne Barnard, who was this very brilliant uh, sort of society diplomat's wife, married to a slightly slow diplomat, um, who then paints these, these gorgeous depictions uh, of Cape Town. You can see the neatness, the beauty, the town planning, the orderly nature uh, of the Dutch uh, Cape Town uh, with, uh, with, with parts of uh, uh, Table Mountain just off to the uh, left in the background. Uh, and this is the town plan. And again, you can see the Dutch town planning uh, at work. And the Dutch settled Cape Town as a provisioning station for their journeys east to their colonies in Indonesia. And it was in Cape Town that you built up your supplies of fresh fruit, of water, of fresh meat. And here you see in the middle of this image, the green area, the gardens where all this was grown for the provisioning of the great East India men, as these ships were called, uh, on their way uh, east, with all the water uh, from Table Mountain used uh, to supply uh, these gardens. And the British um, fell in love with Cape Town and the, the, the sort of cascading seas, the drama of the, the tablecloth and table mountain. Uh, and you, you read these wonderful depictions of these men and women having been at sea for, for three months and then catching the image of the clouds just above Table Mountain uh, and knowing they were on their way. The... Cape Town in Dutch hands was, was absolutely fine as long as it was an open port uh, and the British could go there and other traders could go there. But in the 1790s, revolutionary France invaded the Dutch Republic. It seized uh, Holland. And then suddenly the Dutch colonies were at risk of falling into French hands. And the British couldn't have that because as one Royal Navy official said, what was a feather in the hands of the Dutch would become a sword in the hands of the French. If the French controlled Cape Town, we couldn't control India. So it was unacceptable for the Dutch to continue uh, to have Cape Town. So uh, in, the, in, in the late 1790s and early 1800s, uh, we, we go back and forth with the Dutch uh, for the control of Cape Town. Uh, and then we seize uh, control. And from the 1810s, 1820s, Cape Town becomes uh, a British city. And we introduce all those attributes of civilization, uh, including point-to-point -point racing uh, and fox hunting uh, as a symbol that it was uh, going to stay in British hands. So what was the prize? What was the riches that Cape Town offered uh, the segue towards? 
Uh, it was Bengal and it was Calcutta. Nothing could equal the magnificence of my approach to this town, wrote one visitor in the 1790s. For nearly three miles, the river, which is as large as the Thames at London, is bordered by lovely, well-built country houses with porticos and colonnades. The town is a mass of palaces with the finest fortress in the world. To the Victorian imagination, Calcutta would be connected with the black hole of Calcutta and fears uh, of Indian resistance uh, and rebellion. But to the Georgian imagination, to the 18th century, Calcutta was a place of extraordinary riches. It was from the textiles of Bengal, it was from the spice trades of Bengal that the East India Company built up its phenomenal wealth. Uh, and the, the expropriation of that wealth from Bengal partly came to London, but it also was there in Calcutta, building up these extraordinarily beautiful palaces and riches. Calcutta was the city of palaces where this East India Company wealth uh, was then shown off uh, through uh, the architecture. But at the same time, Calcutta begins to symbolize this move to a different vision of empire. An empire concerned with more than just trade, an empire concerned also with, with territorial ambition. Uh, an empire of land as much as money. And the man behind this was Richard Wellesley, Governor General of India, uh, the brother uh, of the future Duke of Wellington, who wanted much more of a Roman empire in India than an empire of trade. Uh, and his time uh, as Governor General sees the British embark on a series uh, of wars really stretching the footprint of the British Empire right up uh, to the right up to the, to the edge uh, of Delhi. And so just as Gibbon is writing the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in Britain, in India, the British are beginning to think of themselves as the new Romans, to think of an empire uh, along Roman uh, trajectory. And again, this is celebrated in the architecture. So here we see an image of government house. This is uh, Wellesley's vision of government house, which is a consciously Roman a classical vision of what empire is about. And in this image, self-consciously contrasted uh, against uh, uh, the indigenous dark town, the, the crumbling uh, Indian town of Calcutta, here the British portray themselves as a forceful Western uh, civilizing force. But behind so much of this high-minded uh, imperial purpose uh, was the grubby reality of what funded uh, much of this imperial project, which was, in the case of Calcutta, the opium trade. One of the most successful exports out of Calcutta was from the Bengal poppy fields, and the opium headed east towards China. And it crept, as one British missionary put it, in a most mysterious and fascinating manner into the homes of the rich and the poor, and with its mystic fingers gripped the hearts of old and young. The most lucrative market for opium was China. Uh, the Chinese, quite rightly, wanted to block the importation of opium uh, into uh, uh, Chinese cities, uh, and the British thought this was terribly unfair uh, because they were denying themselves the great wonder of free trade. 
Uh, and so we embarked on the first and second opium war uh, to open up China uh, to the wonders uh, of free trade. And what the British wanted was a, uh, a port where the opium could be landed, where free trade could begin uh, within uh, China. And so the fragrant harbor, or Hong Kong, was settled. If Cape Town was about the sea, if Calcutta was about land, Hong Kong was about the informal empire of free trade and leading it uh, were the great merchants Jardine Matteson. And here in this image you see the go-down of Jardine Matteson, the great trading warehouse of Jardine uh, Matteson, uh, and also East Point, their home. And just as with Cape Town, the British fell in love with Hong Kong. It was this mixture of the, the granite rock, the deep blue sea, uh, the greenery, and the language they always reach for is Scotland. That somehow Hong Kong reminds them of Scotland. It's the mists and the greenery uh, and a sort of tropical glen-like feel. And over the course of the 19th century, Hong Kong becomes a central part of the trading empire uh, of Britain. By the end of the 19th century, over 11,000 ships entered and cleared every year, carrying over 13 million tons of cargo. But if the riches of Calcutta initially went towards Hong Kong, my next city shows the move away from the East India Company uh, to a more industrial capitalist model of relations between the cities of the empire. Because the third man in the Jardine Matteson uh, um, business was the great Parsi merchant Sir Jamsit Gigi Boy, um, who was instrumental in beginning the great growth of Bombay. Um, and if Hong Kong was the fragrant harbor, this place of clean air uh, and beauty, Bombay was the Birmingham and Manchester uh, of the British Empire. This was a place of industry and growth uh, and unapologetic wealth creation and vulgarity. Um, and what made Bombay grow was the American Civil War. The American Civil War saw the North blockade the South. The South couldn't get its cotton to Liverpool. Bombay started sending its cotton from Bombay to Liverpool uh, to be worked in, the, uh, um, in Manchester. And then Bombay started to think, well, while we're exporting all this cotton over there, we can do it ourselves. And so Bombay in the 1860s and 1870s becomes this great industrial city. And it celebrates this sense of industries through this amazing high Victorian Bombay Gothic architecture, this, this bizarre mix of the Natural History Museum, Balmoral Castle, Gormenghast. Here you see the Victoria Terminus, the central building of the British uh, Empire, and next to it, the Municipal Corporation buildings. Uh, this was a consciously sort of Victorian aesthetic uh, at the heart of the empire. But my favorite building in, well, my favorite sort of edifice within Bombay is this lovely uh, fountain in Crawford Market designed by a man called John Lockwood Kipling. Uh, John Lockwood Kipling uh, was a professor of art at the Burslem School of Art in Stoke-on-Trent. He then goes as teaches at the Bombay School of Art. Uh, and while he's in Bombay, uh, his son is born on the grounds of Bombay School of Art. 
And because John Lockwood Kipling loved Stoke-on-Trent and North Staffordshire so much, uh, he named his son after a North Staffordshire beauty spot, Rudyard Lake. So Rudyard Kipling is born in Bombay, uh, but we regard him as a child of Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, and he's welcome back any time. My next city um, looks to a different architectural form, which is the suburban house. Um, Melbourne grows exponentially um, in the late uh, 19th century, and part of that is a suburban aesthetic, just as London, and here we are in West London, just as London develops this suburban aesthetic in the late uh, 19th century. And this architecture speaks to this broader notion of kinship, um, this notion of empire across the white commonwealth of the late 19th century, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, a crimson thread of kinship, a shared imperial identity, and an increasingly racialized sense of what empire was about, uh, and with it a notion that the future of empire might actually lie in the hands of the young men and women uh, of the white the white commonwealth uh, rather than in decaying uh, industrialized Britain. And this relationship between the mother country, between Britain and the colonies, is then explored through a series of sports matches, through a series of test matches uh, between Australian teams and British teams, in which behind it all is this notion of virility uh, and this notion of rising up against uh, the mother uh, country. Um, for all that the scepter has passed away, it may console them, the British, to note that the English race is not degenerating, and a generation has arisen which can play the best bowlers of the time. What was more scary was how this, this sort of martial spirit, this language, then became the drumbeat in the lead-up to the First World War. And one of the most terrifying poems in um, Melbourne schools in the uh, uh, early 1910s spoke of a team that is ready to take the field to bowling with balls of lead in a test match grim where if one appealed, the umpire might answer dead. My penultimate city is the Rome of Hindustan, is New Delhi. This is the high point of empire. And those who tried to describe New Delhi were almost lost for words. Dome, tower, dome, tower, red, pink, cream and white, washed gold and flashing in the morning sun. The traveler loses a breath and with it his apprehensions and preconceptions. The architecture of New Delhi wasn't the Bombay Gothic, it wasn't the sort of Roman architecture of um, uh, Wellesley and Calcutta. It was a consciously imperial architecture. It was an architecture which was to symbolize the eternal values and the eternal mission of the British Empire. Famously, Lutchins made uh, the, the bells um, of stone because they would only ring when the British Empire fell. So if you make them of stone, they'll, they'll never ring. Um, in fact, he draws upon many indigenous architectural uh, Indian traditions, as, as you can see in this. Uh, but the architecture symbolized the hubris of the British imperial project. And Versailles in the 1920s, um, the, the person who really loved visiting it 
was the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, and he went to visit it during its construction phase. He said, ah, this will be the greatest ruin of them all. Um, it, it wasn't a ruin. It, it was like a Versailles. It was a place of extraordinary ritual and hierarchy and culture. And so it was only appropriate that someone with the humility and modesty of Gandhi could then go up the steps, uh, uh, have uh, tea with Mountbatten, uh, and take uh, New Delhi uh, for the independent Indian nation. And I love the fact that if we begin with the Boston Tea Party, uh, we end with the Gandhi-Mountbatten Tea Party. But my last city um, describes the end of empire. No city grew richer and fell further from the British Empire than the great city of Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool grow, grew on the back of the imperial project. Uh, initially, as a great slave trading city, it was, along with Bristol, the great slaver. Uh, and then, in the 19th century, uh, it, it uh, imported uh, raw materials from the colonies and then exported uh, finished goods uh, from the industrial cities of Manchester and Birmingham uh, and Stoke-on-Trent. And the Liverpool economy remained very, very successful uh, right up until World War II and just after uh, World War II. And then with the beginnings of the decline of empire in the second half of the 20th century, the Liverpool economy begins to fall off a cliff. The move away from an economy based around raw material production and manufacturing production at the core signaled a killer blow to the, the shipping, the storage, the finance, the trading activities of Merseyside. Uh, and so even in those final uh, years after the, first, after the Second World War, as the British economy begins to shift from empire to Europe, as we move from sugar cane to sugar beet, as our trade goes from the Commonwealth to the European community, the finances begin to suffer. And it reaches the Nadir famously in the 1981 Liverpool 8 Toxteth riots. And all sorts of other forces were at work, deindustrialization, political leadership, but I don't think you can understand the trajectory of Liverpool without understanding the rise and fall of the British Empire. But Liverpool, as you know, is an entrepreneurial city. And Liverpool is also a city of empire. And it has decided that its future now lies with a new empire. And here before us is a depiction of the Liverpool Waters development which is an investment by the Peel Group in Liverpool to take advantage of the rising empire of the East. And whereas once upon a time, Liverpool was the export port for the finished goods of Manchester, now it is designing itself as the import port for the finished goods of China. They are dredging the Manchester Ship Canal. They are building warehouses and go-downs for the import of new finished goods from across the rising empires of the East. And right in the middle of these pictures, you can see um, a new design, a new putative uh, design of skyscrapers uh, and investment paid for uh, by Chinese investors. And not all of this has the approval uh, of everyone in the Northwest. In 2010, the Wirral Society of Local Conservationists condemned those who are dead set on restructuring the riverside entrance into the port of Liverpool into the style of Sydney, New York, or Shanghai. They suggested 
It is very feasible that many Wirilians will not like the idea of being Shanghai'd. But new empires are rising, and ladies and gentlemen, their force will be felt in a new generation of imperial cities across the globe. Thank you. Absolutely wonderful. Does anyone have any questions? You must have some. Oh, gentlemen in the front. The microphone's coming to you, sir. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Um, I, I wondered if you um, agreed with a claim I heard, I think, during a radio talk that Jardine and Matheson at the East India Company were the world's biggest drug dealers, but it didn't really matter because they weren't English. They were Scottish. <laughs> um, uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, Jardine and Matheson um, and the finances of that great trading house uh, began with, with the opium trade. Um, um, uh, and they regarded it as a perfectly legitimate uh, trade. The Chinese took a very different view uh, and sought to um, defend their borders as such. Um, and so that was the reason why Jardine and Matheson went to see Lord Palmerston and said, uh, can we sort this out? Uh, so I'd, uh, I think even the official history of Jardine and Madison <laughs> would not seek to blur that. Another question? Yeah, I noticed you mentioned Melbourne. I'm just wondering why you picked that one rather than Sydney, which was the, the first city in Australia. Um, there, there was a big choice about Melbourne and Sydney. I think partly because of the sort of... Um, I mean, wanting to say different things about different cities in terms of the story of empire, partly because I think Melbourne has kept much more of its Victorian heritage um, and, is, um, uh, and is in a sort of more interesting debate about its legacy. And then I wanted to explore that idea of suburbia um, and the, you know, the tram system in uh, Melbourne and the, the, the sort of local governance system in Melbourne... Uh, allowed, I felt, more than Sydney, a, mu a much more consciously suburban uh, aesthetic. Um, but it was, I, I think, and, and I think also at that time, thinking about the 1870s, 1880s of marvellous Melbourne uh, and this place of extraordinary promise and growth, um, all of that led me to Melbourne rather than Sydney. But I imagine, from your perspective, that was the wrong choice. <laughs> Sydney did have Victorian houses. I lived in one, and yeah. also it had trams. It had all the things that Melbourne had. And I was just thinking, because Sydney was the, the original initial. place, I just wonder what was the, you know, picking Melbourne rather than Sydney. Yeah. That's all, yeah. Okay. That. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Any more questions? Questions at the back? Let me come to you, sir. I'm going to whiz through. Right, we've, uh, we now know a lot about uh, well, thriving industries uh, across the globe and I was interested in the sustainability of uh, such uh, industrialisation. I mean, for example, uh, how, how have these industries managed to thrive without uh, diverting global tourism and without uh, undermining natural resources? Um, well, I... Th I th I think the, um, the history of many of these cities, and, and nine out of ten of these cities are port cities, are, are, you're absolutely right, are 
are often vehicles for the sort of expropriation of natural resources uh, and the export uh, of raw materials. Um, it begins with timber and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, um, um, and fisheries and then goes through all sorts of um, uh, other forms. I mean, the, the, the period in which the vast majority of these cities were built, uh, a sense of ecological awareness was, was, was simply not there. But what, what you also saw was a draining of resources and a draining of, uh, of, of human capital. In, the term, in terms of Calcutta, it was known as the bleeding of Bengal, that all of the riches of Bengal taken by the East India Company, expropriated and exported uh, abroad. So you're absolutely right to, uh, to raise that issue as, what, as one of the dynamics in terms of the, the history of these imperial cities. Good question. I've got a question for you, Tristan. Look at me sitting in the audience. Hello. <laughs> I just want to know, all these amazing cities that you've talked about, have you been to them? I certainly... Why would I write this book? <laughs> we're not going to all these cities. Exactly. Uh, well, if you've been to them all, where, where are you going to go next? Uh, where am I going? Where have you booked your holiday this year, Tristan? Uh, to know. <laughs> it's Don't a worry. tricky year to book holidays. Uh, there are a lot of variables in my diary. Uh, so uh, I, I'm I, sure you get time I, off. I, will be, I, will be, I probably will be going to Ilfracombe in North Devon. That's a <laughs> beautiful place. A beautiful Anywhere place. further afield? Um, I might also be going to <laughs> Carcassonne uh, in south uh, west France. But as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm making very few forward bookings at the moment. Right. You right, could all busy. make that a lot easier. But, uh... Oh, you'd get it in there, didn't you? Anyone else got any questions? Anyone? Come on. I think there's a gentleman Ooh, here. There oh. we are. My colleague will bring you a microphone. I might have missed something, but on uh, South Africa, I'm a bit confused. At what stage did the British get control of Cape Town? I, I understand the Boer War that they invaded because of the because of the gold. So they wanted to take, get the gold, but when did they take? So, so the British the British take control of Cape Town. Um, it's sort of back and forth, uh, 1804, 1806. So it's the early 1800s. Um, but they're not that interested in the rest of the Cape Colony very much. Uh, and then they grow outwards from Cape Town uh, across the Cape Colony. Um, so, the, I mean, the, the, you know, the great trek uh, of the Boers um, uh, northwards from, from the south of Cape Town um, is in the first half of the 19th century. And then you have the, the Boer conflict in the 1890s. So, so, the, so the, 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 there's, you know, Anglo-Dutch tension uh, right through the 19th century, but the, the, the British seized control of Cape Town from the Dutch uh, in the early 1800s. Oh, another question over here. Let me come to you, sir. Uh, to what extent do you think that the inhabitants of these colonial cities are proud of their British heritage? It's a very good question. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, you can see remarkable restoration program, for example, in Calcutta, an extraordinary restoration program of St. Andrew's Kirk um, um, in the heart of the city and, and, and much of the, the colonial fabric, partly, I think, for, for economic reasons, that they know that having this fabric is, is, a, is, a, is a source of uh, income generation and tourism uh, and all the rest of it, partly because they're also beautiful buildings and there's a preservation aesthetic. And I think... I think that sort of, that post-colonial moment, you know, think about Dublin in the 1960s, uh, has now passed. Um, and I think the relationship, you know, wh where the relationship with Britain is still fraught, 
much of that is then sort of expressed through demolition and all the rest of it. But I think in most of the countries I've looked at, the relationship is pretty mature and, um, uh, uh, and, and very, very equal. Um, I mean, Hong Kong hasn't kept much. Um, and, and, and Mumbai takes a pretty uh, sort of um, aggressive approach to, uh, uh, you know, anything holding back its own wealth creation. So, so there, are, there are economic drivers in a city which sort of mitigate against preservation. But I think, as it were, these buildings as um, oppressive relics of a colonial past ha has probably moved on, I think. Which is your favourite out of your ten cities? Bombay. Um, it's, um... You like that one too. He likes that one too. <laughs> <laughs> there's, something, there's something just sort of grandiose and uh, dominant and sort of... It's the chutzpah of Bombay. That's what I like. That's what you like. We might have to have a one last question. Anyone? Want to be the last question? Okay, I'll be your last question. Um, what are you doing tomorrow? Why are you off... Have you got a day off? Uh, I've got a sort of horrific catalogue of children's birthday parties. Brilliant. Good old dad. Absolutely brilliant. Tristan Hunt, everybody. Thank you. We'll be blogging and posting recordings of all the events live each day, so check back for more.